Welcome to episode 7 of Diary of a Cabinet Maker. If you haven't yet heard the previous six episodes, then I really recommend you listen to them first so you can catch up on the story so far. You're all caught up? Great, let's continue. In 1949, I took my dear wife to what was now the State of Israel to see the land, to see our house, and to decide if she would come over there to settle for the rest of our lives. In the years during which the house had been built, it had been let to two families at very low rentals for the flats, which are very nice by Israeli standards, with indoor sanitation and so on. We made all our travel arrangements in London, but when we got to Marseille, the SS Negbar had not arrived to take us to Haifa, and we had to stay at a hotel. The ship was expected at almost any hour, but in the end we were stuck in Marseille for a week. We called daily at the office of the shipping company, and eventually the ship arrived, where we then learned the reason for the delay. A large number of Jewish refugees had sailed from China and had been aboard their ship for many weeks. When the ship reached Genoa, they were not allowed to land, otherwise they would have had to have been interned. So they were taken on to the next port of call, but each time the same thing happened and they were unable to land anywhere. At Cape Town, the South African Jews, who are renowned for their generosity, sent out to them food and clothing and did what they could but the ship had to continue to sail with its unhappy voyagers, a modern band of wandering Jews. Finally, the captain of the ship got in touch with the Israeli government and they contacted the authorities in Genoa, but there was no change. If they landed, they would be interned. So it was finally arranged they would be taken off the ship on which they were travelling and taken aboard the SS Kegba, and this transfer had to take place outside territorial waters. This difficult task was finally carried out, the Negbar came alongside and planks were placed from one ship to the other and the weary refugees were taken by the Negbar to Marseille, there to pick us up. They were a pitiful sight, ragged and hungry, and of course their added and unexpected presence made it difficult for us to get the accommodation which had been promised us when we booked in London. But we were glad to give up a bit of comfort to help these poor people and they were glad to know that at last they were on the way to the one land where they could be taken in freely. It took a whole day for the ship to take on provisions and stores, but nobody grumbled about the extra delay, and all of us were glad that at last there was a state of Israel and a government of Israel. Whilst we were about to go aboard at Marseille, one of our fellow passengers bought himself a very large block of butter, having heard that it was hard to get and extremely expensive in Israel. We thought it a good idea and asked him to buy a chunk for us, and when we got aboard we had it put in the ship's refrigerator. We had no use for it on board, as only meat food was served during the journey, so this avoided the problem of breaking the cashless law of mixing meat and milk dishes and cutlery. When Ray went below to see the refugees, she saw that things were very bad with them. One poor woman was suckling a baby and had other children with her, and they all looked starved, so she went and had our butter taken out of the refrigerator and gave it to the poor woman. She was very grateful for it, and throughout the voyage we saved food from our meals, which were plentiful, and took down below to the refugees. 
Sitting at our table was the man who bought us the butter, and we took the opportunity to tell him we had given it to these needy people, but got no response. I repeated it several times, in the hope that he would take the hint and be a mensch and do likewise, but my words fell on deaf ears. The only little satisfaction I got was that as we approached the Israeli port at Haifa, the weather became hotter and his butter began melting and dripping. He asked the customs officer who came aboard whether he would have to pay duty on it to take it ashore, and the officer told him not to be stupid but to throw it overboard as there would be nothing but a puddle of grease left by the time we landed. So the devil took it, and the greedy man didn't get the benefit of it after all. I met him later in Tel Aviv, and he didn't think much of Israel at all, and was leaving as soon as he could. I thought to myself, good riddance, we can manage very well here without your type, who have plenty of money, as he had confided to us, but don't like to share what they have with others. We went to Batyam to see the house, and after a lot of difficulty and argument, we managed to get a room in one of the flats where we stayed for a few weeks, but it wasn't comfortable, and later we went to stay with the Seal family. We had done a lot of walking one day and were sitting on the seafront at Batyam for a rest. Suddenly, Ray put her arms around my neck and kissed me and told me to go ahead with my plans and complete our home and she would be happy to live here. So it was that I completed the arrangements to build two more flats on the first floor and got out estimates of the cost. It was very much heavier than when I had built the bottom part, but I set it in motion and arranged that it had to be finished inside 12 months. My good friend Scheinbaum undertook to keep an eye on things whilst we returned to London to settle our affairs and arrange to ship our home over. And that is about all there is to tell about the 1949-1950 visit. As to our leaving to settle in Israel in 1951, you know almost all there is to know about it. When the ship tied up at Haifa, a band on the quayside was playing Hatikva, the Israeli national anthem, and it was the first time I had seen it happen, and it made us happy, like visiting royalty being received. Later, when the household furniture arrived at Haifa, I visited the port and saw how roughly the goods were handled when they were unloaded and unpacked from the lifts for customs inspection. I insisted that I wanted the lift transported intact to Batyam and unpacked there. There was quite a refusal for some time, but as you can imagine, I made a lot of fuss and got Mr Gabrielli to intervene. I offered to pay the cost of having a customs or police officer accompany it to Batyam. Finally, I got my way. Those of you who have visited us have seen that we have a delightful home with all the civilised amenities. Our little town is growing. Our house, which was built in the sand dunes, turns out to be in the main street, Balfour Street, and a lovely Riviera has been constructed, so that Batiam is a seaside resort to which thousands of Tel Avivians come at weekends. Exactly opposite our house is a cinema. There are many shops, and there is a bus service into Tel Aviv. On the outskirts of Batiam is a growing industrial area with many large factories called Ramatiam, and there are a constantly growing number of housing projects. In 1955 we returned to London for a few months to celebrate our golden wedding among our family and to be present at the bar mitzvah of our grandson Lewis. And although it was a wrench to leave our five children, five children-in-law and ten grandchildren, we came back to the home we love, in the land we love, and we thank God every day that we have been able to see our lifelong dream fulfilled.
and we hope that you too will join us as we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. A woman of worth who can find, for her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband trusteth in her, and he shall have no lack of gain. She doeth him good and not evil all the days of her life. After fifty-four years of devotion, my beloved partner has been taken from me. This has been the blackest year of my life, to have to watch my dear wife suffering, and to have been so helpless. I had to stop my work for Israel to try to make things a little easier for her when she became very ill. I must confess that all I have done for Israel, and the fact that I was enabled to spend the evening of my life here, has been due to my dear wife. She was the best woman any man could wish for, and I was blessed to be her husband for fifty-four years. I don't complain to the one above for his kindness. She was a very brave woman. She stood the test, and many times she hid her agony from me so that I should think she was getting better. I tried to save her, but the end came sooner than I expected, and even in her last hour of her life, she was the greatest woman I have seen in Jewish life. Sunday, 5.30 in the morning. I always get up early to make a cup of tea and hand her one and I take the dustbin downstairs. I was only gone five minutes and when I came back I found the doctor and his wife were with her. I had left her asleep but she had had the courage to go and wake them and call them in. I asked her what was the matter and she answered me, Pray for me to the one above to take me under the shelter of his wings. So we both prayed together for the Almighty to take her out of her pain then she asked me to put the cushion straight, and I laid her head on it. She closed her eyes without moving an eyelash, and our prayers were answered immediately, and she passed away. The doctor said he had never seen such a quick end. Her face was lovely. Her wish was fulfilled, as she always said that she wanted to live in Israel and to lie in Israel when she died. We laid her to rest in B'nai Barak, next to the wife of an honoured rabbi. My own plot is reserved next to hers, and until my time comes, may God give me the strength to carry on the work for the good of Israel. Michael lived the rest of his days in Bat-Yam and passed away on the 20th of December 1961 at the age of 76. It seems incredible to me how much he crammed into his life with his business as a cabinet maker and quite a renowned one too, his involvement with the Zionist movement as well as his adventurous trips in his quest to settle in Israel. Michael's personal notes were typed up into a manuscript by my grandfather and at some point I'm not sure when, the book was produced. I have always wanted to bring it to life, to share his story with the world, and whilst this is a very personal tale, I hope you found it an interesting spotlight on the time and the real struggle that many people went through in their fight for a state of Israel. Through the course of making this podcast and finding the photos for the website, I have discovered so much about our family. 
I must thank Michael's grandchildren, Sharon, Angela and Lewis, my dad, for giving me insight too. Thanks also to my sister and cousins who, during the course of this series, have found countless letters, photos and more about Michael, Rachel and their family. Thank you Gabby, Rachel, Naomi, Aaron and Eliav for your involvement in helping to discover more about our great-grandfather. Today the family continues to grow and is dispersed across the world, from the UK to Italy, New Zealand, South Africa, the USA and of course Israel. I really hope that you've enjoyed this podcast and maybe it has inspired you to find out more about your own heritage. Thank you for listening. Thank you.